In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Inglestad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Inglestead here, back with my co-host and mental health advocate, Mike Graham. It's, it's I'm back. It, again, this is like, the, I feel like the thousandth time that it's I've really done the happening. I'm back episode. It's happening this time for real. I played some 70s music on one of the episodes because it was like, welcome back, Cotter. Sure. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> and and now it we're happening. It's happening for real, Mike. We had a couple false starts. Um, we did. We, we, we did some extra stuff in between. Um, so let, let's share with the people a little bit what's been going on for us. We, we've been away for a while. We're going to call this the unofficial start of season two. Um, so- Which is like the funniest thing in the world to me, podcast seasons. Well, it's just an excuse to explain away why we haven't posted an episode consistently in a couple months, basically. But, but you know, it was our summer break. That's right. That's right. We we're taking a just a, a snooze, relaxing. So, so you you want to share a little bit about what's been going on with you? Well, y- yeah, that's fine. I, uh, I we just came out with the last couple episodes. Ryan, you did uh, Fleabag with Dean from Podscure. Yes. And the How Are You Now podcast. That's right. And then I did one with a friend of mine, Steve, on uh, The Devil and Daniel Johnston. And I explained on there that, uh, you know, I'd been out with my wife, went into the hospital. We were we were in the hospital for, gosh, what was it, nine or ten days we were in the hospital. Yeah. And then um, she had a, like a heart procedure and she had some pretty major complications after that. And then uh, even after we got home, there was two weeks of um, in-home healthcare, like nurses coming me giving her like IVs every day, that kind of thing. Uh, so it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. And, you know, I'm, I don't know, man, I feel bad for her. Cause it's like, it would suck to be married to me. Cause like, I just like, you know, I hold up for so long. And then as soon as like the crisis is over, I just like crumble, you know? Mm. And, you know, I think that's probably pretty normal. It was, you know, it was scary. She, all sorts of stuff that the doctors just couldn't figure out and, yeah. and we're still dealing with it. Um, sure. But you know, she's okay and everything. But anyway, yeah, I just, um, I started like weighing on my mind, uh, like priorities in my life. Mm. And I started thinking about like, you know, what am I doing? That's taking time away from being with her, you know? Sure. And uh, to be honest with you, there's not a lot. I I take care of the kids, you know. I stay home with the kids. I I go out and I do the DoorDash stuff and make money. Um, when she's home, other than that, the only other thing I did was pop psych. And maybe there was a part of me that kind of started feeling guilty that I I really just I focused so much on it. You know, it's funny. I even had a conversation with my dad about it today, and I told my family that I was going to stop pop psych. I was going to quit. Okay, sure. And they were all bummed, to be honest. And but then they backed my decision and they understood like my reasonings. Sure. And Ryan, we we talked about this. Yes, obviously. we did. Yeah. 
I I just ended up being like, you know, I, I want, I knew I wanted to do it. I definitely, for a million reasons. And my dad said like, you know, one of the things is, is you guys reach people and like, that's important, you know, and, and you've been in therapy and all these things. And, and they all say that you have to have a creative outlet, you know? Yeah. And anyway, it ended up being that I was really just putting, putting things like a target where it didn't belong, I right. guess. Right. Sure. Sure. And, but what I do, and Ryan, we've talked about this, what I do have to do with the way I am, and this probably has to do with my mental health issues is the intensity of which I work on things is something I have to adjust. So that's what we are working on is, is how much I'm, um, I just put so much into stuff and it's like, you have always been like, you don't have to do all that. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of told you what I tell a lot of my patients when we get to a point of like things are good or even frankly, like things are bad, which is basically, you know, I want therapy, uh, much like I want pop psych for you and I to be something that we look forward to, to something we're excited about, to something that we come to with a purpose, not something that's a burden or something that's getting in the way of other important stuff. So that's right. I have this conversation with my clients where it's like, Hey, you know, if this is too much, don't come every week. You know, let's figure out what the, you know, what we call like the minimum effective dose is where we can still get you support. We can still do this show, but it's not something that gets in the way of you living your life or having your family and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's, I agree. It's a, it's an important message all the way around that, that this is an important thing, but it's not the only important thing. And it's certainly not the most important thing. Right. Right. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's our hobby, right? Yeah, absolutely. But but at the same time, unlike a lot of other podcasts, our podcast does affect people uh and has affected people. We've we've received, you know, letters and things that said, you know, we've affected their lives in a that's positive right. way. Letters so in that's the mail. That's huge for yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's so that's, you know, there's a bit of responsibility that you feel a little bit, but at the same time you're right, you have to um if we're not going to come to this, if I'm not coming to this excited to sit here and talk to you about whatever, you know, movie or whatever it is, then yeah. it's it's going to come through, you know, and it's it, our episodes are going to suffer. And then the fans or the listeners aren't going to they're going to feel the same thing and they're not going to be excited to turn the episode on. That's right. So I think what we came to agreement as of right now, we're going to we're we were doing every week. We were doing twice a week, more more or less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we have. What is it? Forty-seven main episodes out, yeah. but really we have like eighty. Yeah, yeah. So we we were producing like crazy. But what we're gonna try to do now is go to like an every other week schedule, and then Ryan because he's uh, he's got and always has had so much more in the back of his mind burning about other things he wants to do. Um, I think you were talking about maybe like doing other things too in between. Yeah, yeah. So, so our standard pop psych episodes coming out every other week, and then in between, I'll just be playing around doing something. Whether it's um, stuff like I I did on my previous podcast, or whether it's interviews, or whether it's me just rambling about thoughts be, that I've had while being a therapist, or whether it's doing Q and A's. Like, I think it'll be fun for us to just kind of play at the format. Yeah. And I, I think that's actually really awesome. Like, I think that just makes our show bigger. Yeah. Like in the end, because 
if I was if I was a listener and I heard what we do every single week, but then also like you were coming in and doing interviews with things that I was interested in with like professionals or whoever, like to me, that would be, I don't know, really interesting. So anyway. Well, good. That's what I want to hear. And I hope the, the listeners feel the same way. So with that, that's that's what we're doing this season on Pops Like 101. And we're happy to have you guys along for the ride. Let's get on with it. All right, let's do it. I was just as much in the dark as everybody else. The only thing I knew is that I could walk. As for everything else, you know, the leukemia, the epilepsy, I was taking medication that she said was cancer medicine. She would shave my head and say, well, it's gonna fall out anyway, so let's just keep it nice and neat. I just went on blind faith that a mother knows best. Mommy, Dead, and Dearest is a documentary film directed by Erin Lee Carr about the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard, for which her daughter Gypsy Rose Blanchard and Gypsy's boyfriend Nicholas Gojon were accused. The documentary explores both the murder and its aftermath, but also focuses on the years of abuse that Gypsy suffered at the hands of her mother, who convinced many that Gypsy suffered from a variety of illnesses. So this is a crazy story, and yes, this is a documentary. So this is something that happened in real life. Now, people's association with it in the present day might be from uh, the Hulu series that also came out what within the last this year, six yeah. months, year, yeah, yeah. It's um, called the Act. The Act, yes, yes, and it's it it's so wacky. I'm gonna call it wacky. I know you're not gonna like the fact that I see it as wacky, but it's so wacky that I, they made a series about it because it's just almost unbelievable. It is, and, and and that's going to be, I think, a big part of this episode is is trying to understand how something like this can happen from a lot of different perspectives. How a mom can abuse a child, how a child can get to this kind of breaking point, how doctors can be manipulated so easily. Yeah, um, that's a huge thing here, and also how doctors can just seem to be lazy and not not fall through on things. Yeah. And then frankly, like our fascination with these kinds of stories, whether because it's a true crime story or not being able to kind of um, sit comfortably with the reality that there are people like Dee Dee Blanchard who do things like this. Yeah. Um, So yeah. So, so where do we start here, Mike? Well, I wanted to start kind of with Dee Dee. Okay. I, I would just get a base around who Dee Dee is because okay. I, a lot of my questions are like how and why, you know? Sure. Okay. So Dee Dee Blanchard uh, grew up in Louisiana uh, as, and she actually was born Claudine Petra. They do interview a whole bunch of her family members in this, like her mom and or her dad and her stepmom. Um, I think like a cousin or nephew mm-hmm. and then her ex-husband and his uh, current wife. So a bunch of people from her past are interviewed, as well as people that knew her in the current or the present time from what it's represented as. But anyway, every single person seems to have the same feeling about Dee Dee from the get-go, and that's, they use the word evil a lot. Yeah. They do, like, they say, like, you see a picture of her, and there's, like, nothing behind her eyes, and you think, 
wow, maybe maybe they just kind of attached this because of the things that ended up happening. But then they go through this list of things that the way Dee Dee was her whole life, and basically she spent her whole life stealing from her family, um, getting arrested, writing bad checks. Uh, yep. One of the main things she did before the big story happens that we're going to talk about is she poisoned her stepmother. Yes, yes. She was slowly poisoning her with like uh, rat poison in her food. And then her own mother, there's like some mystery away. Her own mother passed away. Um, they said that her her mother just like the life drained out of her and people attach questions on whether Dee Dee was involved in getting rid of her mother or ending her life maybe earlier than it should have been. Maybe it was poisoning. Obviously, that's total conjecture. Yep. But anyway, this is a setup as to who Dee Dee like was as a person. It's just generally known that she was bad news when she was around. The reason I wanted to kind of bring all that into play was because of what she ends up doing. And, and we'll get into it further. But she does end up abusing her daughter psychologically by assigning a whole bunch of illnesses to her. Basically, I think, Ryan, they call it like Munchausen by proxy or something. Yeah, we don't hear that term so much anymore. Actually, in the DSM-5, now it's it's more standardized just to call it factitious disorder. Oh, wow. But yeah, I mean, it's still, that's still like a, a very like pop culture-y thing of like Munchausen's by proxy, this sort of like weird term that when you hear it, nobody knows what it means. Right, it's like a house episode. Yeah, exactly. Where it's just like a, a combination of gobbledygook, where it's like, okay, <laughs> is that a, is that, are those words that you just said? And yeah, so it's this, you know, so simply uh, to kind of just sort of set up what Munchausen's by proxy is, is in a person either fakes or actually uh, instigates an illness of another person, in this case, uh, Gypsy Rose, uh, Dee Dee's daughter, either for attention uh, or material gain, both of which Dee Dee and Gypsy got in spades. So, yeah, and there's just so much implication from from that. And to me, it starts with her actions as a teenager into her young adulthood before Gypsy was even born. And that's all those, those things I said she did, the stealing. And I'm talking like it was rampant, like apparently she just was not to be trusted. Yep. And obviously the the fact that she was poisoning her stepmom. Uh, so I'm wondering, you knowing like what she ended up kind of doing with Gypsy um, before we get into that further, but you knowing that, is this something that like you can see coming? It, are the things she's doing early in her life, are these all like attention grabbers? Is she a sociopath? Like what is, what's going on with her? Yeah, it's hard to say because even in the documentary, sort of people are trying to come up with explanations for why Dee Dee is the way that she is. Is she bipolar? I think the cousin says that. He does. Sort of informally at laughed. one point. Yeah, sure, sure. I so, was like, he has no idea what he's talking about. Right, yeah. And there's other sort of, I want to say in passing, someone mentions that Dee Dee maybe was also abused or, or mistreated as a child. There was some there was some sort of family uh, chaos and drama was Didi, when Didi was younger. Yeah, because like her mom was no peach. You know, she was kind of right. similar. Exactly. So, you know, when you hear things like this, it's sort of the picture of like the cycle of abuse, where what what type of behavior was normalized to Didi when Didi was a child? Because when you start throwing around words like evil and and evil getting like conflated for mentally ill, I think that's where we start to see problems frankly, like the problems that we see in how to understand um, like people who commit 
mass murder and things like that. That every time now a mass shooting happens, it's like, oh, well, this person's mentally ill. Oh, they're just evil. Oh, they're crazy. And how do we talk about a person who does something that we can't understand? Hmm. So someone in Dee's case where whether this sort of behavior was modeled to her because she was abused herself or whether she saw as a child that that a way of getting like less negative attention was to be sick or was to be around someone who was sick she developed you know this sort of approach to solving her problems right and it was it was both rewarded and or like not punished enough. You know, she did things like bounce checks, I guess, or write bad checks and things where she always seemed to get out of it. Exactly. Skirt so her way she, around yes. things. Yeah. So she was a, you know, an expert manipulator for sure. And this showed up in, in different parts of her life, um, both in relationships and in, in other ways as well. So being a master manipulator, could that make her a sociopath? Yeah, sure. I guess. But we don't really have enough to go on to be able to say that. And, right. and you know, people that do things that we don't understand, we shouldn't just automatically label them with a mental illness. Right. They're not always a sociopath just because they did something wrong. Exactly. Just because we don't understand why they did something illegal or why they did something terrible. And that's not to say that she couldn't have also been depressed, but we just don't want to you know, form this automatic link between, oh, uh, if you're depressed or if you have bipolar, if you have anxious, if you have anxiety, um, you're more prone to to a, being an abuser or you're more prone to being a murderer. It's like, no, that, uh, the research shows that that is not the case. That It can be true that someone uh, like Dee Dee could be suffering from depression or could be suffering from anxiety, but everything that we've seen shows that that those two things are not linked, that if anything, we ha- we much more see here. It's like the cycle of abuse that mm-hmm. established Dee Dee's really unhealthy behavior and 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 maladaptive relationship style. It it just kind of seemed to me from the actions earlier in her life that a lot of it seemed like she's like screaming for attention. Oh sure, yeah. Uh, there's there's a specific scene in the beginning of the documentary when they're kind of going through this area of her life and and they show her as an adult being like walked down the aisle in some sort of like pageant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And this is this is not like you hey, you shouldn't do pageants. You're weird cuz you do pageants or anything, but just like wrapping it all together and seeing her in this situation. Yes. Where she was just like at her most, you know, when she was walking down that aisle with whoever was like escorting her. Sure. I immediately just kind of thought like this woman's hurting. It's like she, for me, like I thought this woman does not feel like anybody loves her. Mm. And I just don't know if that kind of adds to, adds fuel to the fire for these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if there was abuse and even just family chaos for Dee Dee as a child, you know, we've talked before on the show about sort of the lessons, the takeaways that we learn as kids and how that can inform our behavior going forward. So if, for example, Dee Dee was sort of abused or mistreated and, you know, the lessons that she took away was, well, if I'm sick or if I'm near someone that's sick or if I'm taking care of someone that's sick, I get treated better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, we're, we're this is conjecture a little bit. We don't have hard evidence that this was the case for Dee Dee as a child, but but we could imagine 
you know, how does someone get to this point where they go to such extreme lengths to uh, essentially fabricate these intense illnesses for their child, you know, more or less for attention, for, uh, in some cases, like monetary gain. Right. And and it comes from those sort of like earlier on experiences. You know, people don't, people like Dee Dee don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to, today I'm going to decide my daughter has cancer. Like that's, that's not how it happens. And even even in some of these early stages where I think they're interviewing the the dad and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, when 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 Gypsy was just a baby, you know, all of a sudden Dee Dee started under for some reason thinking that Gypsy had sleep apnea or had yeah, like yeah, it was sleep apnea, sleep problems. And this was the sort of start of, you know, oh, well, maybe Dee Dee got some some attention and some support for what she deemed was a problem with her daughter, whether it was actually a problem or not. Well, this is exactly kind of what I was thinking because, well, I guess what I want to do is lay down kind of some of the things that she said that happened with Gypsy. Yeah. So, so Gypsy's her daughter. Um, She, she ends up marrying a guy named Rod Blanchard uh, when she was like 17 years old and he was like 24. So it's obvious, you know, she's very young. Um, Gypsy comes pretty quickly and Rod leaves um, because he says he got married for the wrong reasons shortly thereafter leaving Gypsy on her or Dee Dee on her own with Gypsy. And like Ryan just said, it's it, like the illness thing started pretty quickly. You know, it started with like sleep apnea, like everything under the sun. As she got older, Dee Dee would say Gypsy had leukemia she had uh they put a feeding tube in her she had was it uh muscular sclerosis ms uh muscular dystrophy yeah she had a couple yeah. of Mul- multiple sclerosis yeah yeah sure. that's yeah. it yeah. yeah and she had that she had gosh she said she was learning disabled yeah eye and ear surgery yeah right um yeah. and she was paralyzed from the waist down right here's the kicker to all of those things and this is just touching on the things that were assigned to Gypsy. First off, she was perfectly well the whole time. Second off, Gypsy didn't know she wasn't sick. Right. So this little girl was literally raised to believe she had all these illnesses. And this isn't just someone going around town telling people that she has these illnesses. This is someone literally getting medical treatment for these illnesses. For these made-up illnesses, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I guess to say Gypsy didn't know she wasn't sick isn't entirely true. She knew she could walk. She knew she could eat. Yeah. But she sort of just went along with the story that the that Dee Dee was giving to the doctors, you know, and, and Dee Dee would always have sort of an excuse like, oh, you can walk, but, you know, not all the time or but your 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 sort of your symptoms are not, you know, will we'll set in later or only for a little bit. All these sorts of things, um, you know, the the will shave your head. Like she she wasn't losing her hair, but right, yeah. But Dee Dee continually will sh- wanted to shave her head because oh, it's gonna thin and fall out anyway. Let's just keep it nice and tight. So all of the extent that Dee Dee was going to to you know keep this uh, this ruse going, it just felt like it started with this sort of small sleep apnea thing, and it just got built and built and built and built and built, and built until. You know, it's a house of cards. It's a lie built on a hundred other lies. 
And there's just so many questions from everything you just said. I'm just yeah, like sure. pouring with them. First off, you have to realize that DD and Gypsy were receiving so much from the community. Every new illness that arised, they were, you know, had outpouring of care and support, money, uh, donations, charity, everything to them to help their lives. So there's like multiple motivation factors here. But just to jump backwards, because you, you kind of touched on it, but, yeah, yeah, you know, it just keeps going through your head when you're watching it is how and why does this start? We talked about how she, you know, maybe had cycle of abuse issues. Yep. But you said that maybe after that first illness, she kind of clung to that. I don't know, like, what classically do you see in, like, this fictitious thing? Like, how does, how does this actually work? I don't know. It just seems so bizarre to me. Yeah, it is bizarre. And I think, you know, another piece of this is people care about me. People, you know, I, I sort of alluded before to like, what's the lesson that Didi learned? And if we boil it down, if she didn't have, let's say, a great family life, but for example, if she had, you know, a sad story to tell, or if it's, let's, let's put it this way, like, um, you know, she went to school and it's like, oh, I have a hard family life or this or that. Now she gets attention, not not just attention, but positive attention, positive attention she might not have been getting at home. So, you know, if if a lesson is learned where it's like, OK, oh, you know, if my stepmom is sick or if my mom dies, people will care about me. People will, will want to take care of me. People will want to help me. And the logic that that belief allows you to kind of jump into mild poisoning is a that. large one but it's one that when you've been abused might seem normal i didn't know there was a, a poisoning scale the mild well, the mild to extreme yeah, poisoning. <laughs> just mild poisoning um yeah no i mean it's and but it's it's often often that that's what it looks like is that you know their intention is not necessarily to kill them but to like, how can I keep you in a state of needing help or of needing support where I look like the good caretaker, where I look like the the good daughter or the, the good hero? Mother. Yeah, sure. So she takes her daughter, you know, then years later into the hospital, you know, for flus and for colds and, and for sleep apnea. And it's like every time it's it's, oh, you know, you're working so hard as a mom to keep your daughter healthy and safe. We can imagine how she might have been getting this this really, in, in essence, like reinforcement for uh, going overboard and getting her daughter all of this care that she didn't need. And yeah. with, e with each step, it's like, oh, like, well, people are really nice to me or people really care about me or people offer me money or offer me support or want to send me to Disney World if, if things are really bad. So maybe it's okay that I'm doing this. Like at every step, she was minimally questioned and more frequently rewarded for what she was doing to her daughter. I, it's just one of these things. That, I mean, it's so bizarre to us to talk about it after the fact when we know yeah. for a fact that, that she was doing these things. I mean, it must have been hard to, to, to spot it, I guess. Well, yeah, so this is, this is part of the problem is that it, it's rare, but we also don't know how common it is because very frequently, much like Gypsy was, the victims kind of get roped into the lie where whether they know it or not, they're participating in perpetuating the story, right? Oh, sure. Like Gypsy, 
her her personality formed around her identity as a sick person. Yes. What I was wondering is if you're in therapy with someone, do you do you ever see signs of someone like reaching out in this way to you in maybe like a lesser degree, like maybe making things up so that you're sympathetic for them? It's so hard to tell, right? Because and I think this is the conundrum that doctors in these cases face where we, the public, want doctors to believe patients who are in pain or who are sick. I mean, I, I remember there was a BuzzFeed article recently where it was like, um, you know, 20 women tell stories of when the medical care system didn't believe some kind of pain they were experiencing. And then it turned out to be much worse um, mm. because they were not believed. So it's like we want our our healthcare system to believe people when they say a problem exists. We don't want doctors' first assumption to be like, well, is this, pr- are they really yeah. that bad? Maybe they're, may, I don't know. Like, we, I think it's a good thing, probably, for, for us, for our doctors, for their first inclination to believe and for take this information at face value. Now, what, what happens, unfortunately, with malingering is that that gets abused. Um, that system gets abused where even though test after test showed that Gypsy did not have any like muscular dystrophy problems, all her muscles were fine, all her labs came back normal, even though those labs kept repeatedly coming back normal, doctors took uh, Didi's word at, oh, well, she, she's got muscular dystrophy or her eyes don't work or she's drooling too much, all these sort of ridiculous things. And and now do they believe her, but they performed unnecessary surgeries yeah. on her. And one of the reasons, and I think this is important, is that once once they started getting prescription pills, it seemed like Dee Dee would then use the side effects of a of a prescription and then go to a separate doctor about those side effects. Yeah. Because then then the symptoms are real. Sure. Right. She she is actually lethargic or she is actually anxious or she is actually having teeth problems. All yeah. those things were real. Insomnia, all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you said in your office it's kind of, it's tough to spot if someone is kind of fibbing about events in their life. Yeah. Because I, I was going to say, if you did in that situation, if you knew you had a patient Let's just let's keep it health stuff. If you knew sure. you had a patient that was like making up health things that happened to them, mm-hmm. and maybe it was just between you and them, who knows why they're doing it? Sympathy, who knows? But like, what would your reaction be when you were just like positive that you weren't getting like this was just make believe? Yeah. So I guess the closest thing that that I that has happened to this example is. You know, uh, and we sort of talked about it the upfront where it's like people don't want to come to therapy anymore, but they need an excuse not to come to therapy anymore. If it's like, so it's like, oh, you know, I, I wasn't feeling good today. You know, let's reschedule for next week. It's like, okay, uh, no problem. And then the next week you see them and it's like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just didn't really feel like I had anything to talk about. Okay. So you weren't sick. You just told me that to have an excuse to not come like it's okay to not want to come to therapy it's okay to feel like you don't have anything to talk about in fact that's good news right yeah so in in the essence of in the sense of like having to confront an issue like this it's like okay 
you think and and in much in you know in a lightly similar way it's like you think that pretending to be sick is going to be an excuse to help you get your needs met but there are other ways of getting your needs met and you know unfortunately you know whether whether you get caught or not that in the long run is going to be worse for you because you are going to continue going sideways to get your needs met and not only for yourself but in the case of Didi like you are teaching your daughter just some super backward stuff yeah it, and it feels like it if we're talking about that person the fictitious yeah. person in your office yeah. it feels like that can just snowball you know oh easily yeah, for sure. Like, oh, I got this great reaction from my therapist. Yeah, and, like one or, day it's I'm not feeling good, then the next day it's uh, my tire blew out, and it's like, you know, you don't you don't have to make up small personal tragedies to not come to therapy. Like, it's okay, and, and not to say that I don't believe people when they say that stuff, but but if they own up to it, like, oh yeah, I don't know, it's just I I didn't know what else to say. It's like, okay, well, let's well, at deal least with they that. were honest then, you know. Well, yeah. So that's that's usually what happens. Is that it's it's pretty rare that I would get someone that's lying consistently. Because like this would be seems to me it would be like you said it's hard to spot. Well, right. And why would you be in therapy if you're just gonna lie? I mean, to whose benefit? Yeah, I was gonna say if you had DD. Yeah. Right. But right. you you would just be like, man, you've got a this is a terrible life you're living, or at least you have a hard time. Sure. Oh man. So just like doctors, I'm always going to be inclined to believe a patient who's who's experiencing, you know, negative life events. My my first thing is not going to be to question them. Now, if details don't line up, I'll I'll certainly poke around. But but no, I want my clients to to feel uh, believed, and I want them to feel like I trust them, and vice versa. So, you know, it's a good thing that the system initially at least works this way. It's just what do we do with these problems? especially with the fact that they're not caught. I mean, this was not caught until tragedy happened. This is true, not caught for uh, for a fact. But however, there is a doctor who did catch it. Well, yes, that's true. Yeah, and yeah. so they're, I think they're seeing a neurosurgeon at some point, right? Mm -hmm. um, yep. Or neuro neuroscience guy. Yep. And he makes a note in her- like Puts it like, in the notes, yeah. Puts it in the notes that he- thinks that the history from the mother is untrue. And he even, I think he says Munchausen's by proxy there. Well, he says mother is an unreliable narrator, unliable reporter. Yeah. yeah. And even, and, and sort of hints at it. Like this could be Munchausen's by proxy. Correct. But yeah. the, the thing that happens here is you kind of get the, the gist that the interviewers asked him, well, what did you do to follow up? Yeah. Basically nothing is what, right. and he basically did nothing to follow it up. He, he put it in his report that this yep. is, he's worried this is false and, and then didn't do any follow-ups. And, and his reasoning was, well, once you get into this kind of thing, then you got to deal with social services and all this other kind of stuff. And, and I didn't know if you thought like this guy dropped the ball, like, did he have the chance to put a stop to it? You know, five years before she ended up getting murdered. Yeah, it's it's a tough question because he doesn't have evidence that Gypsy's being abused. All the evidence that he has is is basically like something weird's going on here. I don't know why this this patient's reporting. It doesn't seem like she actually has any problems that the mom's concerned about, and he can just sort of sort of wash his hands of it and discharge them. So, if anything, to me, is this more like a failure of the medical system? 
that we don't have like universal health records where you know that note isn't somehow flagged in in a, a universal thing where every doctor that subsequently sees them is like, oh hey, well this doctor made a note of Munchausen's. I should watch out for unreliable right. reporting because what happens with these cases is that the patient or the abuser doctor shops. And in fact, in this case, Dee Dee and Gypsy actually moved following, you know, what, what was actually a real tragedy and they lost their house in Hurricane Katrina. And in the sort of subsequent months, their case was sort of identified, I think, by some some doctors and some support services. And they were sort of encouraged and, and supported in moving to the Ozarks, right? Yes. No, no. They moved to Springfield. And sure. I have I have <laughs> something to say about this. Okay, sure. Okay, so they moved to Springfield, Missouri. Okay, that's yeah. about an hour and a half from my house where I live okay. right now. Maybe sure. even less. So I did watch an episode of The Act, the Hulu right. series about this. Yep. And I just have to say that I'm I'm pretty angry about the fact that they gave all the Missourians southern accents. Oh. Cuz they don't have them. <laughs> so I was like, why do they all have they have like deep south accents and I'm like, I don't know. I was like these people never went to Missouri. Well, Dee Dee and um and I'm, Gypsy I'm talking were about from the Louisiana. No, no, I know, I know. Yeah, that's well. <laughs> what is a Midwestern accent? Oh, do you even consider yourself Midwestern? That's a whole other episode. <laughs> it's my yeah. accent. Yeah, exactly. Of course. <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, so this is what they do, right? They doctor shop. They they bounce around. Once it feels like someone's caught on to them, they'll just stop seeing that doctor, and then that file that file trail just stops. So yes, if if a doctor doesn't like take it to the next level, like going to social services, which to be fair on like minimal evidence other than like, oh, this is like a weird my mom, like a weird mom. Why is she reporting or why is she claiming that? Like there's no evidence at that point. In other words, like the doctor doesn't know that she can walk, right? So if if the doctor saw Gypsy like being forced back into a wheelchair, that's a completely different story. Right. Well, the neurosurgeon did take spe- specific notes that Gypsy's legs were perfectly like her normal. Muscle, her muscle mass was normal. Yeah. 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 Whereas yeah. she should have been like, have no muscle mass down there whatsoever. Yeah. So it's like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so inconsistent for sure. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where are you going to be the doctor that, that asks the person in the wheelchair, like, can you walk? Like, I want to <laughs> see you walk. So you're, you're saying like social barriers. Uh, well, yeah, of course. It's it's hard to be the one to call BS. Yeah. You know, even if you have your suspicions, you know, these cases are, at least hopefully, so rare that even if you, you have that sort of hint of something off, you know, to be the person that's going to be like, um, I don't believe you, um, or who's going to try to separate a mother from their daughter, like, she's just going to leave. And look, and, and, and further down... There were instances where where this could have been caught earlier on. I believe someone did call for like a safety check on yeah mm-hmm. um, on Gypsy down the road. They're in Missouri, right? And and basically the mom talks her way out of it. Yeah, they come so in it, and it, w- it looks like a perfectly normal home. It wasn't and- so. It wasn't just this doctor. There's there were police instances and neighbor instances. You know, this was a, a really sad case of of uh, master you know, manipulator. Oh, uh, not just a master manipulator, but like a. a, a uh, a person who slipped through the cracks, which I think is how they describe yeah. Gypsy in a lot of ways in this doc. 
Okay, okay. So I think it's a good time to start talking about Gypsy um, and focusing in on, on how she reacts to all this. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So Gypsy Rose, you know, a in a lot of ways, classical example of a, uh, a child or, or spouse in some cases who was abused to the point, to a breaking point, more or less, right? Right. Like a mental like collapse or yeah yeah I mean you know it's interesting you know she didn't know how old she was which is like another tragedy of this story but oh my gosh um, basically as she starts maturing she starts kind of going behind mom's back she has a phone she has a computer she starts sneaking out going on the internet and and this is when things really start to shift for her when she kind of sees the world outside of her own home yeah it, absolutely and. Just to say about the age thing, yeah. which I think is just crazy too, is she thought she was 16 and she was actually almost 23 years old. Right. Like that's just out there. At the time so of she, the incident. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This all plays into her reaching out behind her mom's back because she's so just has no social skills. She obviously is attracted to men and romance and has all these thoughts in her head of the things she wants, but she doesn't know how they work in real life or mm -hmm. how to interact with people. Sure. So she finds a boyfriend on a Christian dating website, which is like, I don't know, ironic, I guess. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, she jumps in head first with like the first guy that shows her any positive attention. Uh, and his name is Nicholas John. He's got his own story. He's got his, you know, he's his own episode. So his mom says he's autistic um, and he's just a character, this guy. He uh, is really into like um, bondage when it comes to being sexual. BDSM, he, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's violent, this guy. But he's just so nonchalant about it. Like he doesn't, ha it seems like he doesn't have any emotions connected to the violence or, or anything like that. He thinks he has multiple personalities. He... It's always referring to his dark side, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But but that goes to show you that Gypsy, who who is just really just a sweet person, uh, but has no understanding of things. She just falls right in with this guy. I, I mean, it just seems to be like it was just like a it was a poison soup. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's like when when someone is sheltered to the point that Gypsy was then gets access to the internet. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's, you know, obviously it was, a, I hate to say a good thing, but it obviously, it opened up Gypsy's world to a lot of other things that were possible for her, um, both in terms of relationships and um, getting out of the house. I mean, at one point she runs away from home. Um, this, yep. is, this is before Nick. This is to meet another long, like long distance boyfriend, I believe, and she goes to like a some type of Comic Con type place, right? She gets yeah, busted she, pretty quickly. Yeah, she gets found out. Yeah, you know, I think, and this was an instance where, you know, there were a couple of points in the movie in which Gypsy shared like actual abuse in which she was hit or the way she was spoken to, not just you know as this sick daughter, but as a person that was being abused by their parent. Yeah, she said she got hit with a with like a hanger. Basically, what, what ends up happening is she finds Nicholas, and their their bond goes a certain way. And I think Gypsy just 
I don't know. I don't know if it's the meds she was on, what happens, but she she reaches a, a point where she wants to get away from her mom so much, but she doesn't know how that she basically enlists Nicholas to kill her mom. Yeah. And he does. Yeah. Um, he shows up one night and kills her. Uh, we won't go into crazy details there, but it happens. Some of the things I noticed on the way that kind of like really points out who Gypsy is in her life because of Dee Dee. I was saying how Nicholas talked about how he had multiple personalities and all this kind of stuff. Yep. Well, because of that, Gypsy created her own personalities to match Nicholas's personalities. Yep. So they would have these different personalities to work off of. And I thought one thing like, okay, if you did have multiple personalities, you know, you can have a relationship with someone like that. But then I thought, that seems extra strange to me to like create when you know that you don't have personalities to like join that fantasy with him. Mm-hmm. And it's, it seemed like second nature to her. Well, I think unfortunately as someone who was manipulated for the entirety of their life, you know, when, when you're abused to the extent that gypsy was abused, you know, and this is just a, a, a sad fact, I think for people who experience these types of relationships, it's easy for them to fall into other relationships in which they are manipulated or abused. So it was easy for Gypsy, I hate to say easy, but it it probably came naturally for Gypsy that even if she wasn't inclined to, and she sort of alluded to this in a documentary, like sort of be a part of the BDSM lifestyle or the fact that she found someone that uh, said that he loved her and obviously validated her and wanted to rescue her and all these things, like she latched on to that. So mm-hmm. anything that Nick wanted to do or anything that Nick was interested in, Gypsy was basically uh, game. She was down. She, yeah, she was down. She was down to to join him in those pursuits, not only because of that's what he wanted, but I'm sure. And, it, and I think this came across in the doc as well, that she was just interested in living a life different from her own. I mean, she was. Yeah. Even with her, her, her next door neighbor friend had to be in the wheelchair and her mom had to be in front of her and all these sorts of things. Like she never got to not be the sick person. Constantly. Yeah. What, uh, what kind of character did you see her as, as like a person, like throughout the documentary, you get to see a lot of home video of her, Mm -hmm. but you also get the interview, uh, afterwards when she's actually in prison of her talking. How did you think that she was like dealing with this or how would anybody deal with this? Yeah, well, unfortunately, with the cycle of abuse... Um, it's a hard question. Yeah, I mean, it, as far as we can tell, uh, Gypsy does still have uh, pain and empathy and care for her mother. She acknowledges that the way that her mother treated her uh, was wrong and that, obviously, she lied. But, you know, she doesn't hate her mom, despite right. all the things that she did to her. You know, in fact, I think it seems clear that there is still some guilt and understandably so about how things played out but it's it's hard to say how well things are going to go for gypsy down the road i think she got 10 years in prison so this is yeah yeah she she's not going to be in much longer yeah she'll get out in eight and a half and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. she'll be out a couple years yeah so you know the sense that we get from the doc is that she'll have a family to go to her father and stepmother basically Mm -hmm. so from that standpoint that is is that gives me a sense of optimism that gives me a sense of hope that if she can get out of jail and get 
some semblance of a normal life of if she can get a job, if she can get normal stability, if she can get normal validating relationships, then yeah, I think it's possible for her to to have a normal life and to be stable. Mm. Now the question is is if she comes out and and pursues let's just say romantic relationships down the road, you know, what kind of relationships is she going to open herself up to? That's certainly my fear for her. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's weird this is like totally out there but like I I worried about even the family that she's going to go be with. Sure. Right. Like if there's anyone with that inclination uh, to feel that like whatever Didi fell off of the attention. Yeah. Well, they're going to get it with with Gypsy because, well, she's famous. You know what I mean? Or she's sure. infamous. Sure. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just like hopefully nobody is like that. Yeah. But it's it, it's it's pretty apparent with Gypsy that she she knows at some point that she's not sick before yes. all this happens. Yes. In your opinion, from watching it, did you like? At what point do you think she knew? How long did she play along when she was, you know, not just totally in the dark about it? Or, or do you think that maybe it was most of her life that she just kind of knew she wasn't sick? Yeah, it's interesting because I think um, that there probably were enough things going on that she, even if she knew she could walk, for example, that she probably, in essence, was convinced that she was sick or that she had had cancer or that there was enough things going on that she was convinced that she had a chromosomal problem, for example. So even if she knew like, okay, like my mom thinks I can't walk, I can walk. My mom thinks I can't eat, I can eat. But other than those things, like there was enough sort of like vague descriptions of the problems that that Gypsy had that she, in essence, bought into some of it. Um, Yeah. You know, and I think that the turning point for me, honestly, was when she started to uh, socialize, frankly, with people that were not her mom. Like, she was homeschooled. Like, the people that she saw were all in control of her mom. So as soon as that started to shift, as soon as she started to have interactions with her her neighbor, uh, the, I guess the daughter of her neighbors, who was sort of close in age to her, as soon as those conversations and interactions started happening, obviously as she started started to be online and things like that, that that's when the shift started to happen, that she knew that that her life wasn't normal. Something was right. off here, and that even if she had some physical problems, that she certainly wasn't as bad as her mom was trying to make her out to be. Yeah, which is crazy to think about, because then you, when you put it that way, you realize that the act that happened happened, and it wasn't solely because... Gypsy went, oh, I'm not sick. My mom's been lying to me my whole life. She did this horrible thing to me. She did it and probably didn't even know the whole reason why she was motivated to do it. Sure. So I'm wondering if you had a patient that murdered their family member and they were abused, where do you start with that? Like, (laughs) I mean, you can't ever call a murder justified. Right. uh, Because it's not. Right. But... Like at what point <laughs> for me, I'm like, you know, you can't take it anymore. What are you going to do? But at the same and, and specifically with her, it's like she didn't know how to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they even talk about at one point that like her motivation is because in Disney movies, the princess, the locked away princess always kills the the evil queen. Rapunzel. Yeah. Yeah. To get away. I'm just wondering, like, as a therapist, how much you empathize with the choices that were made. 
Yeah, it's tough. I mean, obviously, with someone with this amount of trauma, there are a lot of sort of entryways to how do we help a person like this? You know, realistically, let's say I was seeing her after she gets out of jail, you know, those sort of initial sessions and the initial work is going to be, okay, let's get you used to living a new normal life. You know, let's get you used to, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe she wants to go to school, you know, maybe she, maybe she's capable of doing community college, that sort of thing. You know, maybe you just want to have a part-time job. Maybe you just want to, um, like have a normal family life. Okay. Whatever she feels capable of taking on in these initial stages is going to be important. And, you know, and, and this is what we talk about in therapy a lot, like what this new normal is going to look like. You know, if you live your, uh, entire life or your entire adolescence being, uh, severely depressed, you know, as soon as uh, coping skills start to shift or medication starts to shift and you're not depressed anymore, um, that is that takes an adjustment. It's not just everything's easy mm. and, and now life is goes back to normal. It's like, no, well, I, feel I actually great now. Yeah. yeah, but but no, but it's, it's seriously it's like, what what is normal for me? What is that going to look like? What do I want uh, it to look like? And I think creating that. I don't think I've ever got that far in therapy. Well, well, that that's an important <laughs> part of the process because it's not it's not just dealing with depression it's what do you want not depressed mike to look like and creating that life differently and and realistically like to the extent that she has you know past trauma emdr um cognitive processing therapy things like that are going to be important for her to the extent that she still has anger or frustration with the way that that she wasn't treated. You know, I think she expresses a lot of frustration about, you know, how the doctors didn't catch things, um, things like that, that might, you know, that sort of resentment could really hold her back for sure. Yeah. So yeah, there'd be a lot to work on. No question. I mean, I I think given the right path after prison, Gypsy has and could have a, a bright and normal, as normal as it gets, future ahead of her. Yeah, if she's willing to do the work, for sure. I mean, now this is this is also a person who's it's entirely possible that she just kind of floats through life with this sort of burden of you know, her childhood. Me. Yeah. Oh my god. I did this. Yeah. And like to your point, like people are gonna know who she is. You know, does yep. she change her name? Does she how does she forge her own new identity? All these sorts of questions. Um yeah, so it's. I just feel it, like she's just ripe to be taken advantage of as she goes forward. So that's the thing. I mean, for people who are victims of abuse, are they are they ripe to be taken advantage of? Yes, so, yeah. yes. In this, in the sense that they are familiar and 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 in many cases have like a sense of comfort with being treated that way. Unfortunately, yes, it's possible for them to refall into that dynamic. But having worked with victims of various forms of abuse, I can tell you that 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 sort of new identity is absolutely possible where it's like, I, I want to stand up for myself. I want to be confident. I want to be resilient, that that is absolutely possible. And you right. can even see it in some of the interviews that, that she has a new personality. She is, she does. She yeah. has a different sense of herself now. It, it's almost like you can kind of see that she's ready to get out of jail. Yep. Uh, and start over. Yeah. And even so, a lot of this was based on the initial um, BuzzFeed article that was sort of done by the one of the investigative uh, journalists. And in the interview with the journalist, Gypsy actually 
the journalist basically is like apologizing to her, like, I'm so sorry this happened to you, which is no. like, which is probably like a common refrain that Gypsy experiences, really, right? Yeah. And Gypsy responds, she says, it's okay. I mean, honestly, it's made me a stronger person because I truly believe that everything happens for a reason. So we would say that that's a pretty healthy outlook. I just don't, I have a hard time, I have a hard time believing Gypsy sometimes when she's saying things like that. Okay, so you think that she's lying when she says that or that she's like hiding resentment? I, yeah, I think that that's just like her, her, her answer. Well, it's interesting because I also think she has some good insight, uh, incredibly. I mean, another point, um, she's talking about being in prison. So Gypsy says, this time is good for me. She's talking about how she feels freer in prison than she did when she was living with her mom. Hmm, See, I believe that. Yeah. And then she goes on to say, I've been raised to do what my mother taught me to do. And those things aren't very good. So she understands the cycle of abuse that she was stuck in. And I think that that for me is, is one of the sort of points of optimism that I have for her is that the fact that she can, to a certain extent, see that what her mom did was, was obviously wrong. And the way that she was raising her was not just wrong, but like unhealthy. And and those are things that she does not want to carry on for herself. For me, that what that says to me is that Gypsy is less likely to latch on to people who are going to treat her that way, but that, hopefully is going to latch on to people that that treat her the right way like her her dad and stepmom seem to want to do now what do you think about kind of the last thing we'll wrap up here going forward from what i know about stuff like this we've talked about the circle of abuse um but just generally people being raised by their parents and gaining traits from their own you know the way they were raised what do you think are some warning things warning signs for gypsy herself to look out for to not head down the path of DD and like latch onto that attention and, you know, starting the f- lying and that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, it's tough because, you know, whether it's relationships that Gypsy is forming, um, friendships, intimate relationships, you know, the things that you want to look out for with someone who has, you know, experienced this level of abuse is, you know, number one, how they are like evaluating themselves. So if Gypsy comes out of prison and gets a part-time job, but because she doesn't have a lot of social experience, like gets fired, like, does she blame herself and go into sort of a, you know, a period of depression or low mood because she sees herself as, you know, broken and, and she deserves to be fired or treated this way or abused? Or is she able to see herself as, um, not necessarily like a victim, but someone who's experienced something that was that she didn't ask for, that she did not want, and that she's capable of, you know, essentially experiencing uh, negative life events and continuing on despite those events. So mm-hmm. if she's able to take away from her experience the fact that she is a resilient person, then that is going to be something that really uh, helps her make progress and create a quote unquote normal life for herself. Okay. Whereas if she starts to exhibit signs of feeling like her mom was right to treat her that way, or, you know, that she was also wrong and making like perpetuating the lie, like those would be the sort of really negative thoughts that yeah. might catch up with her. Yeah. Right. And lead her down to a, like an unknown path. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, guys, we, we do have to end this one. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the Mommy Dead and Dearest episode. Uh, but we got to do our ratings. If you haven't listened before, every week, Ryan and I rate on a scale of one to five. Ryan rates um, for the accuracy of what was portrayed. And then I rate on um, how good something was. Ryan, what were you looking at this week? I mean, it's a documentary. It's hard to rate this anything except a five. Yeah, I actually said that on the last <laughs> episode. So I, I think, but to to be clear, in the documentary in particular, I think they do a pretty good job of not, um, you know, tying Dee Dee's treatment of Gypsy to some unknown mental illness. You know, they don't excuse Dee Dee's behavior, just like they don't excuse Gypsy's ultimate behavior. You know, what Gypsy did and and essentially planning her mother's murder was wrong. And she is paying for that. And and we can hold both of these things to be true, that it was wrong that Gypsy was abused and mistreated. And it was also wrong for her to respond to it ultimately in the way that she did. Uh, it's a five out of five for accuracy. As far as it being a documentary, I'll get, I'm going to have to give it a I'm going to give it a four as a documentary uh, just because, you know, there's documentaries that kill it and. Because you're the just, true crime guy. You're the true crime guy. I'm the guy. true crime guy. And, you know, there's there's better true crime documentaries. But as far as just, like, story and stuff, this is this is such a bizarre story that they made a whole Hulu series out of it. It's almost and unbelievable. It's and I didn't wise. know this, but there's actually also a Lifetime movie based on this as well. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Oh, gosh, we should have done that one. Yeah. Because that one, yeah. That... <laughs> anyway, but you know what? It's, uh, in the end, just like Ryan, it, it's it's just kind of this tragic story. It's a good documentary, and if you're interested in this kind of stuff, and, and just, I mean, it's, I hate to say it, it's fascinating, but but yeah, so four out of five, and I'm not going to give it a silly thing either this week, because Ryan didn't, but we do have to get out of here for the day, uh, but first, before we do that, uh, make sure you stick around for Ryan's closing thoughts, and we need to thank Kevin McLeod for all the music that we do use on the show. You can find Kevin and his royalty-free music at filmmusic.io. And now for some closing thoughts on the 2017 documentary, Mommy, Dead, and Dearest. Munchausen's by proxy, or fictitious disorder, is incredibly complicated, and it can be hard to understand how someone could manipulate a family member or someone they claim to love to such an extreme level. There's never going to be one answer as to why Dee Dee did what she did to her daughter, Gypsy Rose, but we can use this as a cautionary tale to try and catch other signs of abuse. Probably our biggest tool in catching these problems is our gut instinct. Doctors, neighbors, and police all at one time or another may have noticed something was off about Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose, but even when Munchausen's once suspected, no one followed through on that suspicion enough to help Gypsy get out of that abusive relationship. If you notice a relationship, or a neighbor, or a child that seems off, don't be afraid to ask questions or to offer support. Sometimes it is these small gestures that can show a victim that there might be a way out of their situation. If you do find yourself in an abusive relationship, support is available. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233, and they can help you find resources if you are in an abusive relationship. If your relationship is with a parent or someone else, know that therapists and counselors in your school or workplace can also help you get resources or even find the separation or protection you may need to keep yourself safe. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at PopPsych101. 
We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.